In this episode, I welcome back Tada Hozumi, aka the selfish activist, who was previously on the show discussing the personal responsibility we have to our collective well-being. Tada is a deep thinker and on a leading edge of ideas in the realm of social activism, so I wanted to connect to find out where their work is taking them these days. A note for listening, this is a very contemplative episode with some ideas that require careful, critical thinking. In our conversation, Tada shares two current concepts of their work, understanding our cultural nervous system and the querying of identities. The cultural nervous system model speaks to a common topic with many of my guests on the show, how we name our interconnected, interdependent existence. Tata describes how shifts in our individual awareness ripple through our cultural nervous system, using Me Too as an example, and how hard binaries are a sign of cultural trauma. They then bring in the notion of viewing all aspects of our identity through a queer lens, seeing how we are impossible to pin down, and how queering of any identity is potentially a way of dismantling social hierarchies created by myths about and distortions of our different embodiments. When you closed off the last time that we spoke, you were talking about the work of Soma in social restoration, like somatic awareness as Mm. the work of social restoration. And I just led a class, which was really interesting. It was called Power, Privilege, and Difference Using Buddhist Practice for the Work of Social Restoration. Mm. And Beautiful. We were talking about Soma. And one of the class participants, I, I felt like he made a, it was like a really insightful thing he shared. He's like, well, I'm learning to listen to the intelligence of my feelings. Mm. Uh, and I thought that was a really lovely definition or description of a somatic awareness and what that could be like. Mm. But the other thing we did in that group and that I try to do as often as possible is like hear what other people's definitions or understanding of something is just like to go into that working understanding of how, you know, cause the, the definition isn't inherent in it and you can know the etymology, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you have a lived feeling of something. Mm-hmm. So I think just opening up a little bit about your understanding of somatic work and how it applies to the work that you do. Yeah, that's great place to start. It's a great place because, yeah, I'm just starting to put out into the world in a more clear way now, like how I think about things. I realized sometimes I don't share everything and that kind of confuses people. I was like, oh, it's good to get on the same page um, by sharing more clearly. And maybe I wasn't clear b- before, but now I'm more clear. So I have things to share that, like, I think a lot of things I talk about are built on top of the things that are kind of implicit understandings for me, but they're not made explicit. So the main thing that I work with is really that our culture is the body. So that means that we have individual bodies, right? But then when groups of people get together, that creates literally another body. And I don't take that necessarily as a metaphor, but it's like a, it's literal kind of actually. It's abstract, but it's literal. Um, There are bodies that make up other bodies, just like our bodies are like that. And um, you might envision it kind of like a cloud body. So when, you know, I think about cloud computing and a bunch of these computers get together and they form a new intelligence, that would be like, yeah, our cultural body or cultural soma is like um, 
as a cloud-based being. Particularly, its nervous system is hard to see. So I talk about um, a framework I call a cultural nervous system and a framework, and that's kind of something that I'm still really intending to. But what that means is that our culture has a body, so it also has a nervous system. Like, you won't see this. Like, you don't see veins and stuff. But what you will see is, like, when posts go viral or there's, like, a, a political movement or, you know, um, you can call things like, you know, almost any like activist campaign is like that. But you know, you know, for example, like Me Too, I would say, yeah, it's like a, it's like a good example of the cultural nervous system integrating new information. So, just like how the individual people, let's say, who are um, naming harm um, from these men in positions of power within the Me Too campaign movement and stuff just like in their bodies, right? Like the people who are naming that harm, like realizing what's been done. The culture is also realizing what it's done, what it's, what's been done to itself. Um, so like, I think on a, on like an individual, individual level, we might look at it as like, Oh, this X person remembered something is, or feel solid enough to say like, Hey, this happened. You, this happened from, because this person did it as naming the other person. But on a cultural level, that actually looks like the whole cultural body realizing what's been going on. So, yeah, the cultural nervous system model is about looking at like phenomenons like Me Too or Black Lives Matter, um, any kind of political movement as like a somatic nervous system phenomenon. And our relationships are how it maps is that our relationships are are like the synapses of our cultural body. So the important thing about what does that mean? Like, well, the important thing about that is that if our culture is a body, that means that what we call activist work, I don't know, some people I think even call it post-activist. So I think that's an interesting category, but. Movement work as well. Yeah, I like movement work, but then in my profession, it gets confused with dancing. Oh, right. (laughs) Which is like kind of cute and i like it but i don't know what to do with it a little bit so i'm like <laughs> you know when people get confused because i say movement or can i have a dance movement therapist or something so i'm like okay <laughs> like i like i like, really like movement work. but yeah in, in movement work or active post-activist work or activist work what have you if our culture is a body and that's what we're trying to restore right social restoration right or cultural healing is like another word i like to use now but we're restoring a body we're healing a body. And that means that the strategies that we use, if they don't follow the guidance that we have around healing our individual bodies, uh, we fall to a lot of danger and, and problems. So one way I can just describe like what, what's like a typical problem, like how does this look, right? So in like somatic therapy, like one thing you try not to do is re-traumatize somebody. And re-traumatizing often happens because people experience emotions that are outside of their threshold. They're too strong. They're too much to experience. And so when somebody has a catharsis, like they feel this rage that they haven't felt in a long time, maybe, you know, but that rage is too much for that person's nervous system to experience that re-traumatizes the system. So good somatic healing work, you titrate. Titrate comes from chemistry. So when you put two chemicals together to create a reaction, you do it slowly. You don't want to explode the laboratory. 
And same thing with the human being, it's chemistry. So you're trying not to explode the container of this person's life or relationships or physical health. So when you look at that whole phenomenon in terms of like political movements, politics, you'd see that when there's like a revolution, the more violent the revolution is, it's more likely that the system gets re-traumatized. So you end up with some kind of dictatorship or some kind of regime change that is oppressive in and of itself. So that is like an example of how a system gets re-traumatized. And I think this kind of understanding is like, a, yeah, just a really valuable one. It speaks to a lot of why call culture is problematic. Not that I think we should stop naming harm, but I think people by now know what culture means. Like it means it's a very specific climate where all kinds of relational violence are justified for X social justice means. And this kind of model shows that it's completely undoable because if you are trying to carry out liberatory movement work in a way that re-traumatizes the cultural nervous system, you're not getting anywhere. You think you might be getting somewhere, but you're not actually getting anywhere or you're not getting as far as you can with less energy. <laughs> so there produces burnout and stuff like that. So. so there's the book, The Way of Tenderness by Zendrew Earthland Manuel, which mm-hmm. we talked I about it last time. Talk about so much. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and she speaks to this, right? She talks about the multiplicity and oneness. And she talks about how oneness isn't something you have to create. And it's like what you're talking about, the cultural body, we don't have to create it. It's there but bringing awareness to it and to the way that it affects us as an individual and then therefore as an individual, how we can relate to the, to the cultural. So to speak to the Me Too movement as an example, actually, I am noticing personally as a woman in the world, I have had some experiences in the last few months, which have been really odd, which is I have had people listen to me from my place of being a woman like actually giving me credit for my experience of being a woman instead of just because I'm white or because I'm well-spoken or because I'm middle-class or whatever, right? Like whatever status that I normally would be given extra credit for despite being a woman. It's like, well, no, actually we're going to listen to you because the, that shift is definitely happening. So it's, a, it's an interesting thing because like you, you do feel it. Like I'm definitely feeling it. And, and, I've been working a lot with the teaching. Are, are you familiar with Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams? Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. So she has this talk that she gives about collective mind, which is interesting. She's like, you, you don't get to have your own mind. You only have the collective mind. But at the oh, same really? time, <laughs> you're only, yeah. <laughs> That's all you have. Right. Yeah. yeah. You only get the collective, but at the same time, you're only responsible for your own mind. You're not responsible for anyone else's mind. Mm-hmm. And for me, I feel like that is a point of tension in my experience that I've had to do a lot of work around where oftentimes, you know, I want other people to change because I see how if they changed, things would start to get better. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the eternal problem that we face. Yeah. yeah. And uh-huh. I mean, we, we did talk about this before, but it's something I think it's worth always revisiting, mostly just to speak about what it means to own your or like take responsibility for your place within that collective nervous system so like how do you as an individual regulate your experience in the collective nervous system knowing that like you you can't get away from the collective trauma that is happening Mm -hmm. 
so this gets into conversations about codependence and stuff like that, right? We're all tapped into a cultural nervous system. We're also not the entire thing. So <laughs> we have our own. And just like in any other relationship, that is what we can work with fundamentally. So there's also inside of that trusting trusting that our nervous system state has an effect on the other people around us, which is absolutely true. It's a phenomenon called emotional contagion, right? And so that resonance that we can have is our greatest tool, I think. I mean, kind of checking out these folks who work with former white supremacists, because I'm kind of like that POC person that works with white folks. So this is like the more extreme version of that, right? Like, frankly. So that's like really extreme. You're talking about former white supremacists. And it's really interesting when you, when you listen to conversations and confessions kind of by former white supremacist folks, uh, Life After Hate's an organization that you can follow for the listeners out there. But on most accounts, they'll tell you that there was somebody in their life that just accepted them for who they are. Educating people on why racism was why it was wrong didn't necessarily have much to do with how these people thought or felt. I mean, of course, that stuff helps. I'm not saying that isn't an important part of it, but what the most important part for them to really like challenging patterns that are really not cool was somebody witnessed them in an unconditionally positive way. And what does that say about what can we do in the cultural nervous system? Yeah, that's. That's definitely something that we can do. Not saying that we should all do that and we're all, everybody's entitled to that from us. This piece of offering unconditional positive regard is like a really challenging piece. So mm. it's like a warrior piece. It's not like, it's, it's not, I don't mean that to be like a coddling thing. It's not, I don't believe it's an easy thing to offer and nor should it be. It's not something people are entitled to. I don't want to give that impression, but... Well, when you, yeah, like when you think about, so what can change within, what can we do within our cultural nervous system is, so the reason I mentioned the unconditional positive regard thing is that that's a state that we can hold when we are well-regulated, essentially. When we are in a state of wellness ourselves, it's really simple. We offer that to the people around us and they gradually change. It's actually really not that hard when you think about it. Um, of course, the circumstances are that we are in are really tough because there's trauma that is long, long standing. So not to minimize that at all, but. Okay. I mean, that's where the self-care aspect of it comes in and knowing where your boundaries are and where your limits are and not pushing yourself. And that there are times when I can keep my heart really open to somebody who may have just said something that I find abhorrent. <laughs> but I can be like, that's, a fault in your thought process that's part of cultural conditioning. There's so much that you're up against when you say something like that, that you're not seeing. And I'm, you know, if I take it out on you as the individual, I'm not actually addressing anything. That's another quote of Reverend Angels that I really like is she, in her interview on, on being, she says that we put all of the blame on the individual without ever looking at the culture that produced that individual. And so the culture gets away unscathed and the individual is outcast. And so this sense yeah. of demonizing and completely writing off and having no room for redemption and yeah. no process for redemption. Yeah, and that gets into the restorative and transformative justice conversation, right? I did write a little blog post a little while ago. I think it's my last one, but about this whole 
that kind of subject in in regards to actually former white supremacists. One thing we can do is take a scalpel and remove them from our society. If we want to, like, we can lock them up, make it really simple. Probably going to be hard to because the government doesn't want to. <laughs> but my point is that you can ostracize people. It's, you can take a scalpel to them and like remove them and stuff, right? Uh, and to Reverend Angel's point, if underlying conditions exist, the same ail- ailment's going to keep coming back. Mm-hmm. That's that's the, that's the thing, though. And I think I'm not negating that if there's an emergency that we should take a scalpel and you know, like, or you know, in a, in a real life scenario that might look like somebody's harming somebody in real life, like it's happening. Very well to separate those people and like, so that can happen. Sure, mm-hmm. totally on board. But the other side is that the best medicine to me is most often preventative. So we think about. Let's say something like a lot of, you know, the rise of organized white supremacy as an ailment of lack of education or prevalence of racism. And certainly those things are part of it. But what we might not consider that is that the organized white supremacy is on the rise because there's not enough space for folks with privilege to go and unpack their feelings. Like, uh, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> When you look, listen to every white supremacist, they talk about belonging. They don't really care about the idea. Well, it's it's a gang, right? And recruitment, and that's how recruitment works. Is yeah, yeah, providing you a sense of belonging when you don't have it. Yeah, I mean, I think the ideology does matter, but it's the it's the belonging part, and it's the recruitment. And so, what does that say? So we can blame that whole thing that's happening, but when you actually look at it, can you say that these bodies? of folks with like access to white privilege, you know, do they have a place to go and be vulnerable and unpack, especially men? No. So, and then I extend that to, well, is there such a place in our justice culture? No, by and large, no. Uh, Then who is failing? I would actually beg to differ that maybe we're not doing a great job at this because when you actually look at the problem, it's like, as justice people, we're really responsible for that in a way. Like, where that's the role we take on in our culture. I think that falls on the point of like looking at the culture and the system. You you see, oh, like the ailment is everywhere. The lack of belonging and and also funny that like apparently in white supremacist circles, like call out culture is really rampant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's like, and they burn out from it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like not any different. It's not any different. <laughs> like, we're just like not any different. But like, I guess the point is, is like, if it's not any different, we have we don't we, you know what do we have to sell? Mm-hmm. What can we sell then? So I think there's just a case for realizing that when we move towards blaming, and I mean, naming harm is one thing, but I think just right sizeness is important too and try to remove these ailments through scalpel, but they're just going to keep coming back. If the people who are trying to do right are not fully effective, that thing is going to keep happening. We are like the immune system of this cultural body. And if we're attacking ourselves, it's like, a, it's, yeah, it's almost like watching that kind of condition. I think there's a lot to unpack and probably some pretty scary territory to venture into when you think about all the repercussions of it. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I need to thank you because uh, Emergent Strategy is like the most amazing book ever. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you were the one who recommended it to me. Oh yeah. Okay. Cool. <laughs> so uh, I, I did. I got to. I got to interview Adrian Marie Brown on the show too, which was awesome. Yeah. And there was something that she 
talked about in the book, which then there was something else that had been percolating for a while is the quote from Rebecca Solnit, not to let perfect be the enemy of good. And just like listening to you talk right now, this is sort of like coming up for me again. And when I was speaking with Adrian on the show about the importance of making space for people to learn within the culture instead of needing to be at a certain level before they can join, right? Like, Yeah, and actually even better if they're a baby. Yeah. <laughs> I love when I get people who are like like absolute social justice babies. It's yeah. Like, yeah, it's actually delightful. But, exactly. And well, and then that that thing, like that welcoming and letting people grow within the space instead of saying, like, well, you have to like tick these boxes or have, you know, know the right language or whatever it is. And how that in itself, like what we're talking about when you when we talk about the the denigration of another human being is like, well, that's just perpetuating more of the same culture that we're saying that we're against, right? Like it, mm. the point is that's a really colonial mindset, <laughs> a very patriarchal mindset. Definitely a patriarchal one. And yeah, so it's, it's like the quote that you can't use the master's tools to dismantle the master's house. Yeah. You can evict them, but <laughs> <laughs> you can't use their tools. No. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, that's probably why I recommended the book. And I don't know to add to that, but yes. <laughs> um, I, I would love to hear more actually just about your your understanding of emergent strategy, the whole interdependence thing, and, and how you bring oh. that into the work that you do or relate it to oh, your yeah. experience. Yeah. Um, I think what I love about Adrian's book is how they see things. I kind of dig it because I come from hip hop and funk music and Taoism. And so all the same elements are kind of like floating around and in emergent strategy as well as in my brain um, body. And, and I guess like the pieces of where I think is really resonant is that she talks a lot about biomimicry. So, and then like fractals in nature. So it's just really given folks like a really great way to talk about this stuff in, in a more queered way. And Obviously, you know, in terms of like seeing our culture as a body has a very strong resonance with the kind of approach that she takes, because that's like a very one-to-one biomimicry, like our body, the cultural body. So I think that, yeah, that's, that's really big. And uh, it's really, yeah, just interesting to see how it's not just emergency strategy, but there's like all these other small things also happening related to it. I feel like emergent strategy really kind of like brings a lot of things together, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of other things happening at the periphery that are all percolating to come together right now. And you kind of see like there's an interesting reboot of this cultural nervous system happening. And it's kind of really exciting to watch. I don't know how to explain it other than like, uh, I would just say like to kind of like riff off of Adrian is it's kind of like watching a mycelial network build underneath a burnt down forest mm. a lot of activists have burnt out in the last few years so i think you're literally seeing that mycelial network happening underneath and so you see that kind of like fiery like burning the forest kind of yeah i would call it yeah call it culture is part of burning the forest so i think it has its place too which is like in a funny way too so i don't necessarily i'm not a purist you know um, i just don't participate in it but I also think the burnout has a function too. Like mm. It's part of the succession. So as much as I critique it, I understand that it, this is a process and it's, yeah, it's not a binary necessarily. Not, it's not a purity thing either, but emerging strategy and 
I think also my work too, like represents that kind of more mycelial network that's building underneath. And that has, you know, there's a time and place for that to, you know, remediate the, mm-hmm. uh, the earth. So. Yeah. yeah. It's like the relationship between the dissolution and the emergence and that constant interconnectedness. Like I'm yeah. feeling that right yeah. now in the, at the Dharma community that I practice in. And a lot of Dharma mm-hmm. communities are feeling this because in the wake of me too, and that, and like the shift is there's a, a lot of leaders of Dharma communities who are, being held accountable finally for their misconduct and that, like variety of misconduct, mm. <laughs> just poor behavior. And on the one hand, I see the trauma of the communities, the response of people who are just like melting down because these are their teachers, you know, and it's, it's painful to sit with the both ends, like both this person mm-hmm. supported me, my practice and gave me so much and they have caused genuine harm to a lot of people. But at the same time, I'm seeing all this opportunity, you know, like it's in these spaces that I'm feeling heard because I'm a woman, not in spite of being a woman, you know, like it's in these spaces that that's happening now. Yeah. And again, that's like a, that's the thing I think about when I hope we find a better way of doing things. And I think we are, but if we see that as a succession, we're not going to get stuck in like the hatred. I think mm-hmm. anger is important, but I'm not down with hatred. And we, we see that a lot of these men in power were there too long. But what's happening is like, it's like a forest. It's like a natural environment's succession. What's there is being let go so something else can. It's being brought back down to size. And that's a healthy thing. And I think part of us honoring that, I think, is really healthy. That leads to a different frame for justice, which I think is a big subject within like me too like naming harm, especially in like a Dharma community, right? I'm seeing it. It's all happening all across the board too. I know there's things going on in different healing communities for sure. It's a succession and I think it's really healthy. And I, and I hope that we can hold to that healthiness and, and feel okay about that as much as there's been a lot of pain. You were saying about emergent strategy, having a queered way of looking at things. <laughs> Yeah. Could you unpack that? Because I, th- I think like that's another thing that I'm starting to hear more and more with different people, conversations I'm having, or people are talking about having a queer lens. Yeah, I mean, I'm still trying to like figure out what queer means for me. So I take a cultural nervous system approach to that subject. I think of queer as a nervous system state, not a gender state. I think the language, it's really important that came from talking about gender. Absolutely. That's acknowledging the history of that. But when I talk about it, in a more general way, I think what I mean by that for me is that who are we when we feel safe or brave enough in the world to be who we are? What happens when we feel safe or brave enough? Some people just really are brave. <laughs> they don't feel that safe, you know, and bless those people because that's not me. You know, and I talk, you know what I mean? When I talk yeah, about. I need a Sarkeesian. Yeah. Props. I don't, I don't <laughs> but, you know, when I think of that, I think about a lot of, you know, like a lot of people who are out trans people they're not passing like those are mm-hmm. people that I don't think it's safe necessarily completely like it's mm-hmm. bravery but I think of queer as who we are when a state that is achieved by being safe or safe and or brave enough to be who we are often we don't know who we are until we hit the safe and brave but mm-hmm. it's a nervous system state so what does that mean it means that let's say for example um yeah, the way you can relate to somebody can be queer in the sense of 
you're relating from a place of, of openness and wellness that creates a natural querying of the relationship. So obviously, and folks, you know, the more afraid we are or the more unsafe and un, non-courageous we feel about expressing who we are, we don't realize that our gender or sexuality might be outside of these hard binaries. So I think querying is well, I'm really about that. And also like binaries are usually like a sim- when somebody has like right or wrong thinking, black or white thinking as it's called, it's usually a sign of trauma. So like gender binaries are a sign of trauma for sure in the cultural nervous system. So um, yeah, queering is just a way of being with each other that's not ruled by trauma within that cultural nervous system. So actually a really funny example I can give, well, maybe not funny, but an interesting one that I'm working on with a, mm-hmm. a friend, um, I talk about them, talk about this with them a lot. Um, their name is Dare Sohei. Um, they're an ancestral medicine practitioner. Um, they're a biracial person, genderqueer person, biracial Afro-Caribbean and uh, European descent. So we've been, you know, talk, you know, there's somebody whose racial cultural identity is very liminal, even to the world. People don't really know how to place them and stuff. You know, and we started using we start talking about what does it mean to queer race? What do we do? Uh, that's like kind of a dangerous subject because it hits on all those like kind of like high, high key, like alarm bells about cultural appropriation and stuff like that. Right. But what we got to is like, well, again, it queering is who you are when you feel safe or brave enough to be who we are. So mm-hmm. that creates a whole different lens of, um, of talking about race. And it, it op- opens up a lot more conversations about, like, we start to realize when white and person of color is, like, very much on a spectrum. We often use privilege as a, as a kind of, like, uh, the be-all and end-all marker of race and culture, but it doesn't actually really work that well. I've been moving away from privilege. I've been really talking more in terms of access and barriers instead, because I feel as well the idea of privilege perpetuates the idea that it's something that we should all want and should be striving right. for. <laughs> like, I don't want to cut off whatever it is you cut off in yourself to not care about other human beings mm-hmm. <laughs> because they have a different embodiment from yours. Right. That's not a privilege. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> um, but yeah, what do I mean when I... Uh, so let's think of it. So yeah, we, I, I call Dare like my race queer friend and we kind of laugh about it because they are race, they're white. Maybe, maybe I don't know how they, I don't know if they identify this, but they're like white and a person of color in a sense. They have lots of bits of white privilege or white influence and access, and they also have intergenerational trauma that's extremely person of color, like very, very much part of that black family lineage of mm-hmm. cultural issues that come with that. And I think when we're not seeing things in a queer way, we would want to categorize this person in one way or another to make it easy for ourselves. So we might be like, oh, you're a person in white privilege, so you're white. Like, we'll do start making these really rigid containers and delete a lot of people's experiences. Another really interesting race queer experience is like, let's say you like, oh yeah, for yourself, like you are pract- you're a white person as far mm-hmm. as I know, and practicing with, within these like lineages of color mm-hmm. that makes you responsible to communities of color, to me. Like that, I look at it in a kind of ancestral framework. So that means that by practicing in these lineages of color, you gain ancestors of color that you're responsible to tend to. 
descendants. That's the kind of framework they use. But that means also that that creates a little bit of queerness in your race and cultural identity, which I think is valid. But that's like a really, you know, high key kind of like, ah, you know, when we get into cultural appropriation and stuff. So that's why like, I think it's really scary. Yeah. But, no, I, I appreciate that a lot. So my, my great grandmother is Métis. So I have indigenous lineage on my mother's side. And that's really interesting for me because there's like a weird tension there where I realized that like while I also, I carry colonial ancestry, I also carry indigenous ancestry. However, I've never experienced any persecution because of that indigenous ancestry. But my mom was very influenced by her grandmother, my great grandmother, because Mm -hmm. she was actually like in her very early years of her life, she spent Mm -hmm. so much time at her grandparents' house. And so my great grandmother was a big influence on my mom's understanding of family and love and how to raise children. And I learned as an adult that that influence, like that indigenous influence was in part of my upbringing from some of the principles that my mom carried from her upbringing. And so that, yeah, it's really interesting. I was like, it's a strange tension. I choose not to claim any Métis heritage, although according to the Canadian government, I could, but I feel like that would be a level of cultural appropriation. But at the same time, I want to acknowledge the fact that that is my ancestry just as much as the white colonial side is yes. my ancestry. <laughs> right. So there you go. You're in a total race queer situation, but we yeah. don't have any, like, so we don't have any language to talk about that currently. Yeah. And I appreciate like yeah. what you said about ease in body, um, who we are when we feel safe and brave enough to be who we are. Like same thing around my sexual orientation. And I went through so many different, like trying to figure out the right label. And it wasn't until I started to explore gender and see the restrictiveness of gender in our society that I became very comfortable with calling myself queer because I love that it encompassed both gender and my sexual orientation and couldn't be pinned down so easily by others. That was another reason why I really like queer. It's hard. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, it's people... important for it to be hard to pin down. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And all in well for us to realize that we're mostly hard to pin down. That's how we mostly are in reality. But trauma makes it so that we make choices to be simple for somebody else. But thank you for sharing that. So I said, yeah, you just seem like mostly a white person, but there you go. And then that's like a perfect example of race queerness. And then also... um, a really important point that I make about, especially about race queerness, is that ancestral trauma, intergenerational trauma, is that is so, even if it's like one sixteenth of your lineage, that's still present. Like if one sixteenth of your ancestry went through residential schools, that could have an, an effect on your body, especially if it's your mother's mother's line. Yeah, there's something around the mother's mother's line is a very like um, important one, I think, from a DNA standpoint. I could be totally wrong, but my point is when you start to think about trauma, right, and not just like cognitive kind of BS, mm-hmm. like you start to realize that, oh, wait, like you can't actually throw out these experiences because somebody could look white and still carry red trauma from those lineages and can be expressed along with other things, mm-hmm. but it's not not a part of their experience. Or how just like racialization generally is a sign of cultural trauma, right? Because it's that disconnect from the fact that there is multiplicity and oneness, right? It's like a removal from our full humanity and recognizing the multiple embodiments of our full humanity. So yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. 
So uh, to finish off, I always like just leaving the space open for you to offer any final thoughts, any advice, guidance, or something like where you're at, something that you want to bring to the space and just offer to listeners. Guidance. Oh, that's a, I don't know if I'm in such a position. Um, it's, it's really cool when we try to stick to a nervous system based somatic understanding of the world and a somatic understanding of justice because it brings up all this richness. So just like sticking to it, like trying to see the cultural body at work. And when we're probably not seeing the cultural body is probably where there's some kind of thing we're not able to access because of some kind of trauma, actually, that our most aware state is a state that is accessing the cultural body. So again, like we talked earlier about things like Me Too, where we might first think of it as adversarial, but when we actually shift focus to the cultural body, it's like, oh, you're like, oh, the cultural body is waking up to its truth. It's becoming less dissociative. It's becoming, it's starting to integrate its history into itself and notice that this is a system that's moving. Um, so I really invite folks into deepening into that. And uh, lastly, I would end off with one of the really interesting things about looking at our culture as a body. And this is the kind of place where I go to, which is really fertile. And I'll, I'll actually talk. I'm, I don't know when this is going to be released, but I have a course coming up, so I'd love to talk about it. Yeah. Shout out to it. But so one of the things that comes up was when you treat culture as a body, you realize that a culture is a person and that means it has a childhood. It also mm-hmm. means it has caregivers. So mm-hmm. that means that, you know, when you talk about when we have in our individual lives, we have adverse childhood experiences. So that could be like neglect, abandonment, uh, abuse from like a caregiver. But as a culture, we can have adverse ancestral experiences and those live in the cultural body. So that might be things like colonialism, plagues, you know, different kinds of like historic cultural events live as like kind of like these past experiences of the cultural body. So I invite folks to tap into that, look at that and process, think about that, feel through that. And, you know, I happen so to be offering an online course with, with my friend and colleague, Dare, uh, who I mentioned earlier. So you can go to selfishactivist.com probably by the time this podcast is up to under authentic allyship build that's where it will be what it's about is uh for white folks it's like what's your part in the cultural nervous system and exploring uh restoring cultural memories of of wellness not just bad like we don't hear stories about radical white people in the 1500s like we don't hear about intersectional feminists from the 1500s mm-hmm. but i believe they exist and so this is kind of connecting to those people as a part of this work in the cultural nervous system because what we have to offer in relationship is always our own healing so fantastic it's great Tada Huzumi offers a range of workshops and support materials including reflective blog posts and thought-provoking videos on their website selfishactivist.com to learn more about my work in the world visit caitlinschatch.com Along with more episodes of Everything is Workable, you can find my blog, books, and art, and learn more about my chaplaincy training. 
You can also become a patron or leave a tip to help support the things that I do. This episode of Everything is Workable was made possible through the patronage of Gretchen Wagner, Julian and Shannon Hatch, We Need a Budgeon, Margaret Prescott, Val Delane, and Perry Pugh, among others. The original theme song for this podcast was created by award-winning singer-songwriter Tajai Moore of More Music. 